0: All right, guys, well, as you know, 1819 News loves to tell stories the good, true, and beautiful stories of Alabama. And that's what we have for you today. We've got an incredible guest coming in, JR Rivas, coming to tell his story about coming to America from Honduras, um, serving in the military at 14 years old in Honduras, uh, getting into law enforcement in the United States of America, getting his citizenship, and striking out in the business. That's an incredible American dream story that happened right here in Alabama. We have an incredible culture here in the state of Alabama, but our politics and public policy don't reflect the people of Alabama. Media drives culture. Culture is what drives politics and public policy. Welcome, everyone, to 1819 News, the podcast. I'm Brian Dawson, CEO of 1819 News and host of this here podcast. where We're pursuing a free and flourishing Alabama every single week. This week, we have an incredible episode. As you guys know, we love to tell stories on this podcast, and I think I have one of the uh, great stories of Alabama that we're going to tell you guys. A guy named J.R. uh who's the president of Personal Touch, Inc., father of 10, and, he, and the owner of Soggy Bottom Lodge. Uh, but all of those things don't do justice what his story actually is and the journey that God has put him on that brought him here. And we're going to unpack that, but before we do, I want to remind you guys to subscribe to this podcast on whatever platform you're using—Apple um, Podcast, Spotify, Rumble, wherever it is. Make sure that you subscribe, click the bell so you're getting notifications, and share all this stuff on social media to help increase our reach uh, so that other people are enjoying the content the way that you are. Without further ado, on that, uh, we're going to jump right in. Um, Jr., thank you so much for joining us. No, thank you for the invitation. We certainly appreciate it. Awesome. So. We um we loved. I mean, it's kind of what I opened with. We love stories, and uh, we had uh had some some instances recently that required us to have security here at the offices. Right, and uh, the security team that came in and and served us well. Um, you, do you want to talk about that at all? Should we plug? Should we plug the security company? Or sure. <laughs> what is it? is it? Blue Line is that Blue right? Line
1: Security, which was established about two years ago, and. Um, my partner and I, Clint Sumlin's, uh, came up with the idea and, and I supported it. So yeah. I think it's a great um, decision to be able to bring more people on board, especially former law
0: enforcement officers. they right now are not doing yeah. a lot. So that's an extra source of income. Yeah, that no, was great. And um, we were we were in a pinch and it was literally on a dime. They were able to come in, get us incredible security, not just, you know, mall cops but actual guys that were a strong show of force. Uh, and we even had pe- protesters that were here. We had people doing surveillance in the back. So it was, a, it was an actual needed thing. Um, and they were to help us, you know, they helped us out. And I was talking to Clint uh, and he's like, man, you know, Jr is my buddy. He's my partner, you know, and, and Clint heard my story and Clint's like, man, you got to hear Jr.'s story. And so he sent me this thing and I read it and I'm like, I've got to get him on the podcast to come share his story. And so, it covers everything from becoming an American citizen, you know, and, and I mean, and it's just, it's incredible. So let's start at the beginning. Um, where were you born? Tell me about your parents, where you grew up. That always plays into kind of where people go.
1: Well, originally I'm from Honduras, Tegucigalpa, the capital. My mother and father were divorced when I was one. Um, basically grew up without a father. My stepdad stepped in. He's a blind person. So there's a lot of things that I was missing uh, from a father's side that would guide your, you know, guide your children in a certain way, give them that structure that you need. And only because he was limited his his eyesight. Yeah. Um, But then it was my grandmother, who was very strict, uh, gave us a lot of love, but. Then on the other end, you know that if you yeah. messed up, she will give it to you. <laughs> um, so that being said, I think uh, the part being coming from a third world country, but being raised in a good home with a lot of love, a lot of structure, gave me what I needed to to grow. Um, when I was 14 and a half, I was drafted in the military, was there for about five years, Came out not thinking or not knowing what I was going to do with my life or whether whether I was going to go to the university and pursue a career in Honduras or pursue a dream, which I call it the American dream, and come to the United States and do something with my life. At that point, when I came here, I didn't know exactly what I was going to do. I was just barely 19 and a half, um, fixing to be 20, but not knowing exactly which direction I was going to go.
0: So at 14, you're conscripted into the, the military. Uh, what was going on in Honduras at that time? What was that like? Well, that was uh, early years, and I don't know if you remember this, but Alabama North,
1: President Reagan during that time, were fighting communism in Central America, which Nicaragua was invaded. Uh, the rebels supposedly uh, were wanted to fight uh, to get their freedom, uh, there was a lot of drugs uh narcotics being um used to i guess uh to support the financial meaning of the war uh, and then of course, there was things that were going on in the country that um, limited a lot of people of their own freedom yeah so in Honduras, uh we were fighting it, and United States was uh the country that was supporting to help from uh, Honduras to be also invaded and fight communism at the same time.
0: Yeah. Okay. And it's, you know, here in America, you know, you hear about people going into the military when they're 18, 19, 20. And so to hear going in the military at 14 and, and and specifically going in the military when there was actually things going on uh, that required the military. So I'm a little bit different uh, experience experience than many folks here uh, and their military background. So, Well, definitely you get the uh, structure
1: and discipline that you need as a young man. Uh, And, you know, there's other cultures and other countries that when you turn 12, you automatically are known to be an adult. So you you are
0: made to uh, make good decisions based on what is given to you. And it's just that's so foreign to us, right? I mean, we've got 30-year-olds still living in their mom's basement, and that's kind of become a societal norm, and it's obviously the reason that our country is just... (laughs) headed down right now um is a lack of personal responsibility men not being men men not having other men to teach them to be men uh and on and on it goes so you're 19 years old is that when you made the decision to come to america how are you able to do that i came here so my mother at
1: the time had married a gentleman from united states and he was able to give us what we needed which was a green card uh came here And right as I turned 20, I really wanted to pursue, whether going back in the military here in the United States or pursue law enforcement. So, um, and I mentioned about the green card. So if I was to go into law enforcement, I couldn't do it with just a green card. I needed to be an American citizen. Uh, luckily enough, I met a gentleman by the name of Ray Murphy, who was a chief of police in Basin Lewis, Mississippi, former police officer in New Orleans, who had made a lot of contact. So we met. I guess he liked me. He yeah. introduced me to a few agents at the time. We would call it uh, INS, Immigration Naturalization Service. And he put me in contact with them, and they they met me, came by, my residents kind of checked me out. I know that they had a background on me, but there was really nothing to see because I was yeah. just recently here. So they uh, they made me go to New Orleans and say, hey, this is the area that I need you to work. And sure enough, uh, I worked under their direction for approximately 10 months, met a couple guys that uh, needed to be dealt with and yeah. and. Uh, there was a gentleman actually from Honduras. I'm not going to say his name, but he owned a, uh, actually several restaurants and bars. One of the bars where I went to, they were selling um, a fake Social Security, a fake green card, but a good driver's license. So basically on the information that I gather, I gave them $700 for me to be able to get that since I told them, hey, I don't have any yeah. paperwork. So they took me to DMV. I already paid them the money. They had a contact in the inside, and I was able to get a, a uh, driver's license under this fictitious name, not my, my regular name. Yeah. And I told them, hey, you know, this is what I got for 700 bucks. So then I went back to the agents that I was working for and they said, well, you need to make... Um, introductions with real agents to go there and find out exactly what was all going on. Cause this is going to be a really great investigation. Yeah. So I did so and they took it from there. 10 months, ten months go by <clears throat> and they call me in and say, look, I think uh, you are done enough. Uh, we're going to give you, uh, $15,000 for your services. And I said, no, I, that's not really what I want. I needed it. Yeah. Don't get me wrong. Yeah, uh, But I wanted more than anything to be able to get my citizenship. So yeah. therefore, they said, well, here's a book. I want you to study it, the Constitution of the United States. Call us whenever you're ready to take the test, and we'll make it happen. Well, I went two weeks. I studied it. I called them. said, okay, well, just come on by uh, our office, which was on Loyola Avenue went to the third floor, met them. Hey, you know, they greeted me, introduced me to another gentleman who was going to uh, administer the test, and he took the book. You know this book? is The Constitution of the United States of America. And I said, yes, sir. Are you ready for the test? Yes, sir. Do you believe, the first question was, do you believe in the United States Constitution? Yes, sir. Well, you passed the test. <laughs> I said, ask me more. I studied for two weeks. I know, every, I know everything on that book from front to back. So he said, no, we're good. And thank you for everything that you have done for us. It's a great service. So from that point, after uh, they gave me the paperwork, I needed to be sworn in. Yeah. And I still remember to this day a federal judge in um, Biloxi, Mississippi, by the name of Walter Jax. And I was the only person that he had in his courtroom. And he asked me, you know, uh, are you ready? And I said, yes, sir. Well, raise your right hand. And we went through the motions and I became a citizen. And after that, I wanted to pursue law enforcement. I stayed in Bay St. Louis briefly. But Chief, uh, Chief Ray Murphy told me to go ahead and pursue a career in a bigger department. So he said, look. Right now, Washington, D.C., Metropolitan Police Department is doing a major hiring. That's where you need to go. So I followed his advice, and I moved to Maryland, Silver Spring, Maryland, and I lived there with my sister-in-law and my brother. I was working construction while I was applying to the department. Uh, Three months go by, they were doing the background. I had to go in, go give them a urine sample three times Uh, the fourth month, um, they call me back and send me, well, they send me a letter saying, Hey, you've been accepted. This is the day that you need to show up for your first day of the academy at, at our department, blah, blah, blah. And I was the happiest person ever.
0: That's awesome.
1: So I got hired by the metropolitan, went to the academy and then put on the streets for six months. I passed a stayed in the fifth district, worked there. Um, and, uh, worked there for about three and a half years and then actually moved to Mississippi, um, worked for the city of Laurel, but I was assigned to Mississippi Bureau of Narcotics. And there I was working under the direction of uh, chief of police, um, Chief Bush, Jamie Bush. And then, under the direction of uh, Lieutenant Sammy Evans for the uh, Mississippi Bureau of Narcotics. And I worked undercover for a period of time with a different name, different date of birth, different social security number, totally different identity. Yeah. And uh, today I may be driving a Monte Carlo, just a little hoopty or war wagon that I call it. Yeah. And then the next week I may be driving a BMW. Yeah. It just depends on what I needed to do and what area I needed to work in. Was there a reason you chose to go into narcotics? So, yes. We have a, a sister that we lost to drugs um, in Honduras. Uh, she decided not to go to school, decided to started dating this particular guy that was giving her drugs. We lost her to the point that she would come into our home and steal a lot of the property that my mother and father had. And eventually became a prostitute and lost her and kind of, I see, I saw what it did to our family, hurt us a lot. And I just wanted to fight drugs, mostly for that reason. Still love my sister
0: a lot. Wow. So stories inside of stories, what are, um, working in narcotics? I mean, you probably saw some pretty incredible things and were involved in a lot. What are some of your crazy, craziest narcotic stories that you're allowed to talk about. I'll tell you a funny story.
1: Sure. So uh, this is uh, back here uh, working in Alabama under um, the unit that we work at right now, 17th Judicial uh, Drug Task Force, under the direction of Greg Griggers, our DA, district attorney. So we are working with Robbie, and he's one of the agents. And Robbie stopped this eighteen wheeler. Um, and as we were moving into the tractor that evening, he puts the light and he he points it at me, like, look at it. This is like a box, which is a false compartment. Yeah. He goes, We got it. Let's hope he's there. And sure enough, there were sixty eight kilos. This particular guy that was driving is from Honduras. Uh, he gets arrested. About a year and a year or so, he goes to court. Our good friend, um, who is uh, a federal judge in Tuscaloosa, he's been to Honduras to go and help and support some of the orphanage that we support there. He's been there like five times. So as he's there, he learns a little bit of the slang. Yeah. Baja Ombe. That's his line from Honduras. It's like, and what it means is like, you're lying, dude. Yeah. And so these gentlemen's now in court. The attorney, the defense attorney's playing his, playing, cleaning his case yeah. and so on. And then right at the end, Judge Kugler asked this particular gentleman, "Would well, do you have anything to say? And, you know, there was a lie after lie that it was proven during the proceedings and uh, this guy tells Judge Kugler, and somebody's translating, and Judge Kugler goes, Bahambe, which means you're lying. It's that yeah. particular slang is just from Honduras. Yeah. So this particular guy turns around, looks at his, look at his daughter, and like put his head down, and like, I'm done. I'm guilty. They're yeah. going to put me away. But uh, it's, it's one of those deals where you feel bad for people. There's some people that do it because they have to. Their families have been threatened, um, and that's that's real in yep. Mexico. But there's people that do it out of greed. There's yep. people that do it just because they want to have more and they went the wrong way about it to go get that much more money. So uh, that being said, I think uh, I feel for
0: the users, Yeah. but not so much for the dealers. Yeah. I understand what? What was the scariest thing you ever encountered in your law enforcement career? Uh, I
1: think uh, the time that I was working undercover, and I went through a checkpoint with somebody that I, I was actually buying drugs from. And the guy, the officer that pulled us over, asked us to get out of the vehicle. And the guy that I was buying from was looking at me like, what is going on? I said, I don't have anything here. Just be relaxed. Yeah. And I had uh, my radio. I had a gun. And the officer that was there was very conscientious of what he was doing. Then he realized this guy is a cop. Yeah. So he was very careful how he conducted himself during the traffic stop and allowed us to go. He let him go first and then he pat me down. He was like, your cop, Yes. Okay, go. But I didn't know if he was going to start asking, asking questions and yeah. reveal who I was. Yeah. And it was not going to be a good thing. And that particular time I was just working like 20 minutes away from my house. Yeah. And, you know, they knew where I lived, supposedly, but yeah. <laughs> keeping your identity concealed is everything when
0: you're working yeah. um, undercover work. Was this in Mississippi? That was in Mississippi. Wow. That's interesting. So One of the next guys I've got coming on the podcast did a ton of narcotics work in Mississippi as well, which completely independent from, you know what I right. mean? It's kind of interesting. He'd come over and was telling me some some pretty crazy stories as well. So... Law enforcement, um, about what year or, or what launched you into doing something other than law enforcement? So I uh,
1: moved from Mississippi to Alabama back in our, uh, March of 1996, and I quickly found out that living expenses were higher in Alabama, in Demopolis, where we personally live. And uh, I didn't have, quite be honest with you, I didn't have the income to either pay for the mortgage, pay for groceries, utilities. And something had to give. So um, I started working nights. And then during the day, I went and got a loan to be able to buy a vehicle and some equipment to start doing lawn care and landscape work. Yeah. And these, um, the financial institution, being Robertson Bank, was, they were kind enough to do that for me. And that was the first financial institution that... I mean, believe you me, when I say... They took a chance. They took a chance because my credit was awful. Yeah. I had bad credit. And so I was able to make ends meet, pay for the equipment and the vehicle that I borrowed money for. And within a year, I realized that I was making one and a half times more than I was making with the police department. Wow. And I was dying. I was literally like a zombie. I was working yeah. day. I was working night, spending three four hours at home sleeping, barely seeing my children grow. It was like a blur for several yeah. years. And after that, I just gave up law enforcement. Hated it. That's my passion. That's what I love to do. Yeah. And I dedicated my life to what I call now Personal Touch Incorporated. That's the name, um, and we did extremely well. At first, it was just myself. Then it was three more three guys that we hired. And eventually, we needed more people. We started doing some more work, doing tree planting. Uh, then went from there to herbicide application. I realized that I needed to have a lot more people. Yeah. And so we got some guys from Mexico under the H2B program, came here and, and helped us out to do what we do today. But back in the day, I used to run to the mailbox to go see if I had my check to be able to make payroll. Yeah. And today uh, I don't have to run, thank God. We have all the things in place that uh, I'm able to be, I'm able to make payroll. Back in the day it was like three guys. Now we're running about 540 to 760 folks depending on the time of the season. But God has been good, and God has been a blessing to my family. And now, God has been able to bless other families because of
0: where they work, uh, supporting personal touch. Wow! And so the the growth of personal touch. You started out just doing regular landscaping, uh, and then got some pretty big contracts with the power company. And one, of the, if I remember reading your story correctly, there was you had an opportunity to, to kind of leap into something bigger decided not to because you had made, you, you wanted to honor your word or, you know what I'm? So uh, it was with Alabama power, we began
1: uh, doing work as a subcontractor. Yeah. And uh, I gave my word to Asplin which was the general contractor. Yeah. And they gave us um, the work to work under their umbrella. And I told them, I said, we'll do this work. No problem. And the, manager during that time for Aspen said, hey, I need you to consider not competing for the next two years at the time that you decide to leave us. And I said, yes, sir. Within a year, I got asked to become a general contractor. And I told him that I was not ready because I gave my word. It was nothing a contract being signed. It was just my word. And I wanted to do just that. And after that year, I told Aspen, hey, I'm fixing to go on my own and pursue my general contractor's license. And so we did so, and we started doing work directly for the utilities. And so the, we were also doing other work for in the industrial side for some implants and so on. Yeah. And um, that's what we've been doing. Our footprint right now is about 18 different states. And in any industry you work for, your word is everything. You you don't need a contract if you're yep. not going to respect what you said, whether you sign it or not. Yeah, you know that's that's you and your yep. name, your name and your good name because you only have one name.
0: Yeah,
1: is going to precede you. So keep your good name, protect it, honor it. And the same thing that you're doing, people are going to do the same thing to you. Yep. They're going to respect you and they're going to honor you because they know you you a, a good man, a man of your yeah. word.
0: That's an ancient truth that has existed forever. And for whatever reason, and again, you see the decline in our society. There's not very many men who would do what you did. You didn't sign any paperwork. They would have just been like, well, I didn't sign anything. I'm going to jump in. Um, but I think God blesses, um, blesses people who do things that right way. And God says, let your yes mean yes and your no mean no. And when a man says yes or no. Um, and he honors that. I think God blesses that, and I think that's what you've experienced.
1: In a great example, I have another gentleman by the name of Kirby. Uh, He owns um, K&G Refractory, and this gentleman and I became friends back in 2020, and we struck the deal. He said, uh, if you don't work for anybody else, we'll give you a lot of work. So we did so, and Believe you me, there was other companies that realized, hey, we have a good workers uh, within our company. The work ethic is there, um, and they would want it for us to go there. In 2005, it was a test. Everybody complained about 2009, but for us, it was 2005. We didn't have hardly any work, and we had these employees. So I'm having to pay my guys 20 hours, the part-time, the uh, hourly workers, the supervisors I was paying them the full amount. In two thousand five I get a call from Kirby's uh, competitor and they needed they needed thirty two guys to work around the clock, six months. Um, and I call picked up the phone, I said, Hey Kirby, guess what, man? Guess what? Wrenches just called they Asked us to go and do this all the work. Do you have any work? He goes, not right now, Baba. And that's what he calls me. <laughs> and <laughs> I said, uh, well, what should I do? Brother, if you got to go to work, you got to go to work. Do what you need to do. Yeah. I said, okay, buddy. Well, thank you. I hung up the phone. I called Wrenches back. And I said, thank you for the opportunity, but I can't do it right now. We are extremely busy. I had to honor my word with Kirby. He's yeah. my brother. And I'll put the phone back. And I felt relief. Yeah. And I called Kirby back and I said, buddy, uh, we're not going to work. We're going to wait. I went to Robertson Bank and I borrowed like $360,000 to make uh, payroll and pay bills. And that was at the end of July. August went by in November. It just started flooding. We had so much work. We paid our debt that I borrow. And I was happy because I was able to sleep good at night with myself, knowing that I had honored my word to. And that was a test. Yeah. That was a big test. But everything came out
0: good. Amen. Amen. I love hearing those stories. All right. So personal touch. Um and so now you would I guess describe yourself as a competitor of Asplant then. Is that right? At a lot smaller
1: scale. Aspin is big. He's there just about in every state, yeah. four, I think it's maybe fourteen different countries. Yeah. Um they're they're a big company. Yeah.
0: But that's kind of the similar work you're doing. The similar, though. yes. Okay. Well that's interesting. And then that turned you into needing to entertain uh basically business partners and that's where soggy bottom comes in as we grew uh we were able
1: to start entertaining some customers that we were allowed to so i was working about uh 44 to 52 days out of the year working outside my house to go to different places see my customers there you know do a little fishing bird hunting or killing deer etc Um, and then I would come home, and then I would pick up my bags and go do it all over again. So I needed something here in Alabama, and just so happened that I was in Alec Jones's property in Demopolis um, hunting with a gentleman by the name of Kenny Freeman when the text came in saying, hey, this particular property came open, and it was right there in Linden. Um, Great person that owned it, family-owned land for many years, I took my um, office manager at the time, Ms. Debbie Mary, and we looked at it, and she said, "Buy it." So we did, <laughs> and I remember it was a muddy, muddy, muddy place. Yeah. And the perfect name was Saggy Bottom. <laughs> you you get <laughs> you get taller by the step. Yeah. So we uh, the first thing we did was put a put a pond, we put a shop, and then we built the first lodge, Saggy Bottom Lodge. Yeah. And then we hired uh, a gentleman by the name of uh, Brandon Smith. He came in with a good idea to make a bigger lodge to be able to accommodate corporate people, which has been a great deal and great success. Uh, And Shack 33 was created within the property. Um, And now we have... uh, Companies that come in with their own employees to do team building, bring their own, bring some customers, uh, weddings and things of that nature. Um, So we've been very, very blessed from that time that I
0: didn't have any money to buy milk. Yeah. Going from not enough money to buy milk to buying soggy bottom. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's incredible. What, um, what's the biggest deer that you've shot there? Right now, this is the year. Is uh, in somebody shot
1: a four hundred and twenty-two inch deer. The deer the next biggest deer was I think it was three hundred and sixty-eight inch deer. Beautiful. Is that beautiful. high fence
0: or is that it's high fenced. What about your uh not high fence deer? What do you guys or is it all high fenced? Everything, is high, Everything fenced. is high fenced. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Well, that's pretty incredible. 400 inch deer, man. Well, is it, and is that something that you open up to? Is is this like a business that people rent or is it just invite only? Or how does that work? So, uh, initially we established Sagi bottom for my
1: family, friends, uh, and some customers. And then we learned that we needed to have, um, more income. So we made a commercial. So now you can book hunts for, um, Quail, chucker, pheasant, ducks, fishing, bass, brim, crappie, um, and then deer, wh- white tailed deer, fallow deer,
0: and elk. Okay. And you just go to soggybottom.com or what's your? Uh, Saggy Bottom Lodge. Soggy Bottom Lodge. Yeah. Uh, if
1: you just go to Saggy Bottom, you, you may pick up a different type web, okay. uh, <laughs> web page <laughs> there.
0: Um, Soggy Bottom Lodge. Soggy Bottom Lodge. Okay. Well, that's good stuff. And so now we'll wrap it up with this. What um you law enforcement and <clears> then <throat> private sector business. And now I, I feel like I've Googled you and saw that you're still involved in law enforcement. Tell me about that.
1: I went back uh, approximately seven years ago and I had the opportunity to meet uh, the sheriff in Clark, Clark County. He sponsored me to go back to, you have to have a law enforcement agency behind you that was going to you're going to work for. Yeah. And uh, I went to my academy again and passed it. And right now I can come here and arrest you. Yeah. Not here because of yeah. my jurisdiction. <laughs> but uh, the, the greatest thing about this, and I, I mean this from the bottom of my heart, being in law enforcement is not about arresting people. It's about. Serving people, helping people. Um, We may arrest somebody, and in the time that we're doing interviews and so on, we still talk to them about God. Change your life. Yeah. Because sooner or later in the business that you're in, you're going to die. Yeah. Um, So for us, and I say us, I mean, I've seen some of the other agents, and I'm going to refer back to Robbie Autry a great agent used to be a trooper and I see the way he conducts himself with a guy that we just stopped with 68 kilos when we yeah. had that guy. And he treated that gentleman with much respect, even though we would call him a dirt bag, yeah. but that dirt bag still needs to be respected. And mm-hmm. that's, that's the thing at the end of the day, that's what we are supposed to do. We are servers. We are here to protect you. Yeah. Um, and, that's what we want to do. And thank God I have the opportunity to work for the 17th Judicial Drug Task Force, which is a great unit. Um, and we have great people. We have a great community in which we live in. Uh, I can't say enough. Yeah. And then the commodity to be able to work with other agents and uh, agencies and, you know, whether it's a municipality or a county or a state or a federal. Yeah. Um, being able to do that is is just awesome.
0: Yeah. What you just said reminded me of a story and I've never shared the story on the podcast. I mean, they know my story. But um something you said about police officers doing their job um and and serving people and respecting people, even if they are quote unquote a dirtbag. I was one of the dirtbags, right? That was my thing. Um, but <clears throat> I was this is in El Paso County, Colorado, so it's Colorado Springs, Colorado. Uh I ended up being one of the most wanted of most wanted fugitives in Colorado Springs, Colorado um, on hundred and some odd thousand dollars worth of bonds. Uh, and the guy that headed up the fugitive task force was a guy named Sergeant O'Driscoll, but he was also the head of the crime prevention unit, which was a joint task force between color Springs police department, El Paso County sheriff's office, and also um, some federal agency that funded the thing. And I was involved in meth. And so there's all kinds of stolen property, like motorcycles, cars, all this other stuff. And so he was basically in charge of stopping people like me. And so we had run in after run in and I, we almost became like arch nemesis. Okay. There was another police officer who I won't say every run in I had with him. He was extremely disrespectful. He broke the law to uphold. It did not follow the way that you're supposed to do it. It There's a way to do it. Sergeant O'Driscoll and his entire team did it the way that it was supposed to be done. They were extremely respectful, you know, and that always stuck out to me. Like this is a, this is a good man. Right. And, and that stuck with me. And so he raided my house, my cut, my pit bulls uh, attacked him his guys they could have shot my dogs they didn't right they were able to de-escalate the situation um didn't just start rummaging through the stuff Waited till they got the warrant i mean they did everything the way that it was supposed to be done right and that always stuck out to me well finally when i got uh arrested when i was on the run and i was a fugitive his team is the one that ultimately got me uh june 19th 2007 um and I, after my whole i'll have to tell you the, the whole story later but when they when they finally got me I went back to the El Paso County Criminal Justice Center, which was the county jail, and I was sitting in there, and him and one of his guys came in there, and he said, Brian, you owe me some money, uh, some gas money, because I've been chasing you all over you know, for the last six weeks or whatever, yes. and I laughed. That's funny. And he said, but in all seriousness, Brian, what are you going to change? And he said, I see something in you. He says, I've been doing this for 20 years. One, I've never seen anybody jump out of a window, so they were chasing me. I jumped out of a third-story window with a repelling rope. whole other story. But he said, I've never seen that. But he said, on top of never seeing that, I've never met anyone who has the potential that you do, like you're not like all these other people, when are you gonna change? And I I said, I'm gonna change, and I shook his hand. And three years into my prison stay, I just felt like I needed to write him a letter and thank him. And so I said, look, thank you and your team for saving me. You didn't run into a burning building and pull me out, but you saved me for myself uh, from the destructive behavior patterns and everything else. You intervened, you stopped me from doing those things. I'm in jail now and I'm, I'm able to think clearly uh, and with that thinking, clearly, I want to thank you. And he wrote me back, and we corresponded back and forth, and kind of became like a mentor to me. Uh, it was pretty cool. And so, um, I need to, I want to reach back out to him and connect now that I've made it here in life, right? But just a good man that did things right, and that allowed me to then, you know. So anyway, I thought that was an interesting.
1: That is interesting, and and um, we go through life, and I think. Um, some of the experiences that we have and, and that we have seen and challenge uh, ourselves to make changes, because making changes from being bad to trying to be good and doing the right things is yeah. not easy. But when you do, you inspire people, and I respect you for that, and thank you yeah. for what
0: you do. Yeah, well, thank you. Kind of cool being on the, the opposite side of it, uh, <laughs> and then here we are and God brought us together, so that's really cool. G.R. Rivas, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. God bless. Awesome. All right, guys, that'll wrap it up. Uh, Until next week, put your trust in God and keep your powder dry.